1: Ciao, When speaking about the 2007-2008 Arsenal team, I think Donald Trump summed it up best when he was talking about coronavirus. It'll be like a miracle. One day it'll be here, and then it'll be gone. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. Maybe that's not going to be true of coronavirus, but it was certainly true of the 2007-2008 Arsenal team uh, that Arsene Wenger built to replace the Invincibles. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this just in... They did not replace the Invincibles. Here to discuss it with me is Scott. You can find him on Twitter. Oh, underscore that, underscore crap. Hello, Scott. Yeah. See, you were on mute thinking you'd, you'd get a later introduction. <laughs> you had to snap forward. See, I, I like to keep you on your toes because I, I wasn't sure if you would be keyed in, but you were and you did it. So thank you. Pause on Twitter, pause my pants. Yeah, no, hello, yeah, pause.
2: Normally I'm last. Oh, so. Yeah,
1: normally you're last. Yep, 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 yep. And now go back to being last. Pause on Twitter, pause my pants. What, hello, pause.
3: What an amateur. Woohoo.
1: Woohoo, indeed. And Tim's on Twitter. Staberto, hello, Tim.
3: Hello there. Hopefully this episode doesn't inspire people to inject disinfectant into their lungs.
1: No, no. I mean, um, you know, light helps. If you can get it inside your body, that would be great. Uh, I live in Minnesota where it is mostly dark and cold for many, many months. And believe me, if I could get light inside my body, I would. What I will tell you, the easiest way to get light inside your body is to get like a bore. And you just bore some holes in your body and then the light can get in. But that... um, that causes what bleeding, the hell is so going I, on? yeah, I wouldn't do that either. Uh, we, we're getting way too topical, sort of like the disinfectant, and so uh, I would, I would advise that we move on. But yesterday, Clive and I did a rewatch of the second half of uh, our, Tottenham one Arsenal three from September two thousand seven. Uh, and that was great. And if you're a patron, uh, you can certainly listen to that. If you're not a patron, I totally understand. These are weird and hard times and certainly uh, the last thing I'm to do is say definitely sign up. If you're there, we love you. If you're not, you're here. We love you for that as well. One announcement that we have to make, uh, we are going to be donating money to the Arsenal Foundation and we are going to be joining you, the listener, in doing that. Uh, partnering up to try to raise as much as we can. I am working out the details with the Arsenal Foundation as we speak and uh, we'll have an announcement about that on the very next pod Uh, just as soon as I have the details hammered out. But hopefully we can raise a lot of money for the community for a great cause um, and help a lot of people out. We, of course, will be donating some money as a podcast, but also uh, giving you an opportunity to join with us and and all donate together. So more about that, Anon. I just need to kind of figure out how to make it happen, to be fair. Uh, And they are helping me understand that. And so that is a good thing. So, let's talk 2007-2008 Arsenal. And this pod is going to focus on the aftermath. What happened at the end of that season and the subsequent sort of 12-24 months. Why the team did not go on to to fulfill some of the promise that it showed during the course of a season where, in February, uh, it was on pace to have the most points in Premier League history. Not unlike a team this year that is also not winning a title. Too soon. Um, So... I did write a blog, and since Tim is usually the one being like, oh, I just wrote about this this week, uh, I wrote about this this week 400 years ago. It's a blog called Arson Wenger's Lost Team. It is about the aftermath of fallout from that season. It is on a blog called Yankee Gunner Blog, which used to be a thing. I shit you not. Um, and I will link to that after the podcast. But let's dive into it. And Scott, I'll, I'll start with you because we haven't heard from you on this season yet. And, and before we get to the aftermath, I'll just get your take on it. We picked the season apart bit by bit on the last episode. But for you, is this a, a season that now that we have some distance from it is characterized by happy memories or uh, sad memories?
2: Also, I didn't really live through this one like I did going back. But this is one that, you know, um, a while ago I found the, all of the season reviews um, posted onto a Google Drive somewhere. I think, Tim, you posted it sometime recently, too. Um talking about all of those. So this is something that I kind of relived through that. And then kind of looking back statistically um, and you look at it and it's a, a fun team. It looks like it's, you know, full of, um, you know, kind of that transition period, but there was still a lot of talent. It wasn't quite project youth yet. Um, so I think looking back, like, I think, wow, that there was a really good team and one that I would have liked to have seen on a, a week to week, day to day basis.
1: Mm, it. It definitely was a team to watch week to week, day to day. Are there any players that maybe then you didn't get to connect with or only know through your database when you have your spectacles on or or through the uh, sepia tone glow of those season reviews that maybe you wish you had seen spend more time at the club?
2: Well, I think just the the midfield in general. I think, you know, um, Cesc and Flamini together were a great partnership. Um, I think if you just you look through the team and just the technical quality um, was something that we don't necessarily see now. And I think that's something that would have been really nice to be able to um, kind of relive.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We talked about how, how midfield today feels like a, a real problem. And, and certainly that midfield looked like it was poised to be something special. And it didn't wind up happening. And Tim, there are a lot of aspects to how this team just disintegrated, fell apart uh, so quickly. Before we get into the individual players, where they went, how they went, how quickly it happened, I want to ask you sort of like how you think this impacted Arsene Wenger's subsequent decisions to to lean into youth or transfer decisions or things like that. Because, so you look at the landscape in football at the time and you have Chelsea with all the money sort of buying up titles, but Manchester City now coming out of the shadow to sort of join them. Mm -hmm. And... Obviously, uh, several of these players that were on this team would wind up at City, some sooner than others. I mean, do you feel—you you said that you sort of thought that Arson stumbled onto this team by accident. But how much impact do you think it had that he had this team that had so much promise, that looked like it was very close to being something special? And, and, the, and the strategy certainly would have been to lean into that team— and to have it break up so quickly, I, th- I think it would have been very difficult for a manager to suddenly find himself rebuilding again. So how much of this do you think was a plan by Arson that, that you know, was, was really sort of coming together and that he would have expected to be the long-term strategy? And how much do you think it would have impacted him that, that he wasn't able to sort of see this one to fruition?
3: I think it was seismic. I think this is um, this kind of summer, and maybe the end of the 0708 season. Yes, and this mm-hmm. summer, I think it's the first. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. If if Venga, if if the kind of um, disintegration of the Wenger reign was death by a thousand cuts, um, then this was the first one. Um, this
1: was like a Lego. <laughs> this was not yeah. like a, yeah. Little well, one, I was yeah.
3: going I was going to expand the metaphor into the first cut is the deepest. Oh, um, I'm sorry. That. sorry yeah. <laughs> Should have given but, me that. But th- this, this to me is the first time. It's the first time I think that the supporters really start to ask questions um, at this point, and and that perhaps a little bit of that uh, when I say impatience so that I don't necessarily like I don't want to sound like um, I think it's you know completely unjustified or anything um, but that that impatience and those questions start to come uh, on the man himself I, I think so basically I think this kind of starts, whether you want to call it the second or the third chapter of the Wenger reign, probably the third really, because you've got the first and then you've got this like little bit either side of the stadium move. And then this, this is kind of an abrupt beginning to a third chapter that he probably didn't want when he wanted it to be a a glorious continuation of the second. Um, And yes, of course, Manchester city come along and things like that. But I, I think this maybe scarred him a little bit just because of the amount of stuff that went wrong. So like Rosicky getting injured, he doesn't kick a ball in 2008-9. Not one game uh, does he manage, not one squad. He's completely out uh, for the whole season. Um, Eduardo, of course, doesn't come back until like January, February 2009, like, and and then, you know, he was only really able to do cameo appearances. So that's his season wiped out. So those are two things that we consider traumas of the 07-08 season, but they very much belong to the 08-09 season as well because we lose those players for that campaign as well. So it's not just that they deny us the title in 07-08. He still has those players. Those players haven't left. They're just not available to him. So on top of the players that did leave he's he's got that to contend with and you know continuing issues around the vi- the fitness of say robin van percy um the the decision to make william gallas captain that eventually completely backfires and in november 2008 he has to strip gallas of the captaincy
1: mm-hmm.
3: and a lot of this <clears throat> stuff comes to a head which some of it is be- completely beyond his control some of it is coin toss stuff And it all just basically this this is the point really where it just feels like everything starts going a bit wrong. And I think some of that um, is, you know, laid at his door. Some of it is just 50 50 decisions that can go either way. And they went the wrong way. Some of it's slightly at his door and some of it's completely beyond his control. And it pretty much all goes wrong. And again, on top of the players that actually leave, This is the summer where Adebayor starts agitating Mm -hmm, because he scored 30 goals and he starts talking about, you know, describing AC Milan as Beyonce and all of that. And so and then he eventually gets himself a new contract. And then I don't know if you remember, he scores at the Emirates Cup. He scores a penalty and he's booed by the supporters who can see through him, who've kind of said, we don't care that you signed a new contract. We know what your game is. So that trust breaks down and you just start to get the slight souring of the atmosphere, and you look at some of the stuff that happened in 08-09 without a also it comes to a head with a buoy in November 08, like, this stuff just starts bubbling to the surface, and and it's the first time we've really seen that under Arsene Wenger, and it's the first time you really get the sense that maybe this isn't all going to plan, because even in those slightly fallow years... After the Invincibles, I think most, not all of us, but most of us and me, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I didn't. I thought this is fine. Uh, this is all part of the plan. We'll have a slight dip, but then these youngsters will all come good and we'll all be fine again. That, that's what I thought. And I think that's what a lot of people thought. And this is the first time, I think, that a lot of our faith was challenged.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is kind of wild. So you think about it, right? 07-08 was maybe supposed to be a transition year. The last of the Invincibles was basically gone, right? I mean, you've, you've got Gilberto Silva and Jens Lehman, and that's that's really it for the most part. And Gilberto takes more of a, a backseat to Flamini, and that's something we can get to. And Jens Lehmann, after I think two games, is replaced for the most part for the rest of the season by Manuel Amunia. So this is the team that's then supposed to be the next project. And from that next project, whether through injury or agitating for a move... I mean, Abu Dhabi, obviously, plagued by injuries, hardly ever played. Uh, Rosicki, not a game the next season. Diara, loaned in January, sold. Eduardo, not a game next season. Gallus had to be stripped of the captaincy. Alex Leb, a season later, off to Barcelona. Matthew Flamini, in the summer, gone on a free. Gilberto Silva would go for good. Adebayor, a season later, later, gone to uh, Manchester City. And you start to think about, like, a first-choice 11 from the 07-08 season, and your two two of your strikers or forwards are gone, your sort of number 10 is gone, your, uh, you know, whatever you want to call Rosicki, you know, he, I think he was sort, sort of a starter for the most part. I mean, he started 24 games, gone. It, it just becomes incredibly difficult for Arson to have any continuity with this team, and he winds up having to start a, an almost entirely new project 12 months after this season ends. Paul, I think one of the things that we talked about was the midfield and the importance of the midfield and and I would argue that after this team broke up, Cesc Fabregas played in some really really mediocre midfields and and I obviously not getting Xavi Alonso is a big part of that, but with Flamini going and Gilberto Silva going and Diarra being allowed to go, suddenly players like Song and Danielson had to come into prominence and play more minutes in subsequent seasons when they weren't really ready to do it. Rosicki was out because of injury. Is is midfield and the decision about Diarra and, and Gilberto Silva and really leaning into Flamini in his last season, is that... Of all of the sort of implosions that happen around this team, is is that the area where maybe Arson got it most wrong and had the most devastating impact for for the subsequent seasons?
4: Um, hmm. Ye, well, it's a good case for it. Um, Should sure, sure he inter- have
1: played? I mean, do, do you think he got it wrong? I guess part one of this question is. Arsene Wenger got a lot right. I mean, the team played brilliant football. It's hard to argue with it. But he removed leadership from this team in some ways and leaned into some players who maybe didn't have a future. Most notably, Flamini at the expense of an experienced invincible and a talented guy in Diarra, who who he you know was a French national. He probably could have made him happy there for a long time. I mean, did he get that wrong? Was that wrong to to make that move? Flamini started forty games. Diarra was off by January.
4: Well. Uh, I mean, if you can't read Diarra right, when you're French, he's French, you know everything about him and his background. It's one of those where I'd have to trust Arsenal. Um You know, he had, he had full information or as full information as a coach is going to have. Um, Flamini, I mean, in this season, Flamini was great. There was no reason not to think he'd keep being great going forward. Another French fella. Uh, like in the game we watched this week, the Spurs away from home, one three, um, uh, Flamini was the business. Uh, I mean, the engine on the guys is, is phenomenal, really good partnership with, sure. uh, Fabregas. He just didn't have a contract him. though. <laughs> you know, He, he was, yeah he, yeah,
1: he was ready for that, that Bozeman. <laughs>
3: uh,
4: look, I'm not nervous about Flamini. Uh, you know, he, he's French. He's on the same wavelength as, as Arsene Wenger. I think he'll get this sorted in the summer. Um, so, yeah, we lost we lost family. But, hey, you know, see, seasons are a thing at a time at the end of the day. I mean, we're looking seasons ahead. This is, a, as we talked about, I mean, the, the ice under Arson was moving, was cracking and moving rapidly. I think he was thinking months and a season at a time, not multiple seasons at the time. So he made his decisions. Um, like you say, when you look at the injuries to these guys, and you listed Song, I mean, um Song was good till till he, he got a little wayward in his in his uh maybe his attitude a little a little cavalier in terms of his role within the team, mainly because he became one of the main guys. Uh, Except can, can I make a anchor. point about
1: that? I want to push back on that just a little. Yeah. So Song played nine made nine uh appearances in two thousand two uh two thousand seven, eight. Okay? Sure. Nine. He graduated to 31 in 08-09. And I remember in that season feeling he wasn't ready for that much playing time. And I'll never forget uh, Andrew Arsbog wrote a blog about a poor performance in 8 I think it was in the 08-09 season where he said, it makes me sad that Arsene Wenger thinks Alex Song is good enough to play for Arsenal. And Song did develop in 2010-11 in particular into a player, and 2011-12, who was good enough to play for Arsenal. Maybe not the best, but good enough. But... The, the disintegration of that 07-08 midfield meant that he was playing 31 games the following season. And in my mind, there is no question that neither he nor danielson should, should have been playing that much time at that stage.
4: Yeah, look, I think that's very fair. I think the other thing in watching this, this game, the, uh, the, the game against Spurs, that struck me was the fragility of this team. I mean, it was great. It was fun. It was exciting. But man, they had four 1v1s against us. They could have scored off a couple of corners. I think we were deservedly the winners on this. But this was, you know, this was an incredibly swashbuckling team. And the idea that that's how you win the league, uh, even at that time against the competition that it was, um, you know, a very strong United team a very well-resourced Chelsea team um, that we were on track to do it. Y- you could always see some hiccup coming along. I mean, in this game, we had Van Persie and Adebayor up front. Uh, we weren't really using Eduardo at this point. It was uh, September time frame. I think it was game five or six or something in the season. Um So although I often lean into what would have happened if we kept Eduardo, we shouldn't have, in some ways, we shouldn't have needed him. Uh, Fabregas had scored five midfield goals by the end of this game, so we're getting goals from all over, was kind of our way of doing things. But this was great and wonderful, but there was a fragility about it in terms of how we played, in terms of the kind of unevenness of the squad has Tim hinted about there was a luckiness to how this was just kind of clicking, giving the the quirkiness of how we got to this point in the lineup of the squad. So yeah, when we when we put our hands in in, in a midfield of uh, Fabregas and often song in 08-09, I mean we we were really we went from being <clears throat> the best team in the league in 07-08 for most of it. Um to 08-09 being in deep, deep shit and having to bail ourselves out in the January transfer window. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, you think about it, right? You you go from having guys like Kleb, Rosicki, um, Flamini playing 31, 35, 40 appearances to 37 for Danielson, 31 for Alex Song. Um, you know, and and it's no wonder why almost overnight that team gets a lot worse. And I I just think that is a situation that was partly um, caused by injury, certainly, right? Diaby not being able to play a lot and Rositsky missing the entire next season, which, you know, for all the things we think about Rositsky, you know, he never had the ankle break like Ramsey or like Diaby or like Eduardo, but he missed... A ton of time. I mean, as much time as anybody. And it, it really hurt us because it meant guys that were young and not particularly ready and maybe never good enough, like Danielson and Song, played a lot more. Um, you know, I, I just think the, the players that had to step in and take playing time in 08-09 in would not have had to play as much if the team held together. And, and certainly the decision not to use Diara more And the decision to lean into Matthew Flamini despite the fact that he could leave on a free. And and just remarkably, loaning DR out to Portsmouth in January, you know, I I think precipitated that breakdown in the midfield. Scott, let's just talk 30,000-foot view for a second, squad building. So here you have this team that has played three quarters of a brilliant season. And... Whether it's immediately that summer losing guys like Kleb and Flamini, uh, you know, and one or two others, or within tw- you know twelve months losing s- tons of key players from Adebayor, you know, Eduardo and Rizicki with injury, uh, Kleb, Flamini, so on and so forth. How how many seasons does it take to put a squad together, and what does it do in terms of your time horizon when a team that's been on pace for a record point total, you know, a, a team that you've built sort of out of thin air and a bit unexpectedly? breaks up that quickly. I mean, how difficult do you think it must have been for Arsene Wenger to to pivot and readjust, especially given, look, you can always adjust to players leaving, right? Like, you can adjust to a player going on a Bozeman or, or a player pushing for a move. What's harder is a Robin Van Persie who plays 25% of the next couple of seasons, a Rositsky who plays none of the next season, Eduardo who plays none of the next season. You know, you wind up with guys like Vermaelen who miss 18 months to injury and things like that. So, how, how difficult would this have been from a, from a squad building standpoint? And how do you assess the, the way that was handled in terms of trying to rebuild from a team that had just been rebuilt?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I know we are kind of talking about the, the midfield there, and that's one of the things that you really notice is, you know, kind of think about what the the peak age for midfield is, and you kind of think it's that 23 to 27 range. And, you know, we had, you know, several players in that range that then left, you know, either that next season or right after or in the middle of the season. And so we went from, you know, guys in their peak ages to guys that are right about 20. Um, you know, looking at the, the next season, um, Arsenal... You know, didn't have, you know, I guess Diaby is the the closest he's 22 in that 08 09 season. So we basically didn't really have a midfielder in their peak range going after that. So I think squad building, you you really kind of want to think about um, how can we keep players in their peak range and, you know, have people coming in after them. So I think that was something that really got hurt. Um, in that we weren't able to necessarily plan for that, either through injury or through players leaving. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, you look at, it probably took the midfield, you know, a good three years to kind of get back to somewhat close to that level um, that, you know, we had in 07, 09, or 0708. And I think that's something that, you know, really hurt Arsenal going forward, is that Arsenal had top-level players, but they didn't have the depth to be able to do things um, that You know, the Chelsea's, the Manchester United were able to do. So you really had to build for a couple of years to be able to get to, you know, being able to challenge for a title. And because we lost so many players over that course of that season, that we just weren't able to do it the next year. And it's, you know, re, you know, kind of rebuilding phase again. And I think that's kind of where we've been over and over again, since, you know, basically since the Invincibles broke up.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And and I do wonder if, to some extent, that influenced how Arsene Wenger related to later requests to leave, whether it was Nazri and Fabregas or Van Persie. um, You know, and and then even later in his career, towards the very end, when he didn't sell Alexis, when he didn't sell uh, Mesodozo, when maybe he should have. Because, you know, when you have a team like this and you've got a plan in place and you feel like you're working to something special and you see the very first glimpses of that special potential. And you have it taken away from you so so abruptly, I, I can understand how you'd say you'd rather just go with what you know, go with the players you have than, than letting them go. But of course, you know, he didn't have a say in a lot of that. You know, you talked about strength and depth and maybe not having it. But, Tim, one area where we did sort of have strength and depth, interestingly, was striker. And, you know, we talk about the, the midfield and the breakdown of the midfield and winding up having to rely on players like Danielson and Song the next season instead of Flamini and Rosicki or, or Diaby and things like that. But, when you look at the the situation up front in two thousand seven eight, you've got Eduardo, you've got Van Persie, you've got Adebayor. Now, granted, Van Persie did that thing he does, where you know he was injured for for part of that time. But mm. you know, I, I do wonder, you know, with Eduardo being gone the entire next season, Adebayor's head not being right and being ready to leave, and Van Persie having again the the injury problems, was was Stryker the sort of house of cards that? that became the biggest problem because the Adebayor situation, a major one. I mean, in your mind, let's talk Adebayor for a second. Was Adebayor ever going to be as good as the 07, 08 season suggested he could be? Was it a fluke benefited by a team that was just purring all around him? Because he would never really hit those heights again. Um, you know, you can mm. see flashes of the brilliance, and we know he went through some really hard things in his life personally, related to family and related to what happened back home. His bus was famously and terribly shot at um, when he was on international duty, but is the Adebayor situation sort of the canary in the coal mine in a way, the extent to which he sort mm-hmm. of wandered around aimlessly a bit the next season, and was he ever really as good as the '0708 season suggested?
3: Yeah, no, I don't think he was. And from memory, I remember a lot of fans saying that they didn't quite think he would be. Um, Not not that they thought he'd be terrible or anything, but they they really, really felt like, um, you know, that season wasn't a flash in the pan, but that, that that was a real peak. Um, That came together through a number of things. I I think the interesting thing about the the striker thing here is that this season, you know, we spoke on the on the first pod in this series about how Arsenal were kind of flitting between 4-4-2 and 4-5-1. This season, we actually go like quite a bit back to 4-4-2 initially because and it's largely because we have Adebayor and Van Persie. Um, and we don't have Rositsky. So, all right, we've bought Samir Nasri, right? But we don't we don't have Rositsky. We don't have Hleb anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've kind of, the midfield's a bit more depleted. One thing I will say is that Denilson was excellent for this season. Uh, that, that's one thing I'll slightly push back on. I thought he had an excellent season um, this season. We I started I 36 backwards.
1: league games and had made one sub-appearance. So he was ever-present. Yeah. Song went 23-8. and eight. Yeah. So, I mean, those two were in a lot.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and Denilson played that often for good reason. He he was really really good during this season, and um, but but we went four four two a lot, and I think that was yeah because we'd lost like Rzyski and we didn't have Eduardo and those players who were kind of capable of linking the front line to the midfield. But I think it was also because we had Adebayor or Amban Percy and uh Benga kind of you know understandably didn't really want to drop either of them i think the thing for Adebayor as well it wasn't just that he had um you know this real purple patch you know 708 i think mentally he left a part of himself in that season it wasn't just that he couldn't hit those heights again it's that he didn't really try um and there were points during this season where he was incredibly frustrating to watch because it was clear he wasn't trying. It was clear he wasn't giving one hundred percent. Wasn't um, this really his offside by really or of
1: season? Also, like where he would just stand offside at times, and just like not try to get back. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It was clear in his mind he'd, you know, he'd made it. He'd got, you know, I, I think he'd got like a bit of a case of the big Iams. He'd, he'd got the big contract. Um, and yeah, and and, and I, I think his his effort and his application just wasn't quite there, because actually Van Persie was relatively, you know, by his standards, was was fit for most of this season. He made twenty four league um, starts, so I mean, by his standards, yeah, <laughs> that's a great season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like more than half. Mm. Um, but there, some weird things happened during this. Se- so. Um, there was like there was a big tactical change and and actually one that that was really necessary in a weird way when Fabregas got bad, uh, picked up a knee injury in December in that game against in a game against Liverpool and he was out for three months and at the time we were about seventh and we were thinking shit we're seventh and now we've lost Fabregas for three months and what Wenger did. Um, was was actually quite necessary tactically because we'd been playing four four two. We were far too open, and when he lost Fabregas, he started playing Denilson and Song together, and kind of Nasri ahead of the of them. And that's when he brought Arshavin, and so by necessity, he went to a much more modern tactical system because four four two was old hat. Um, by this point and, and Wenger hadn't quite caught up with that like he'd flirted with 4-5-1 and 4-3-3 um, but when he lost Fabregas he kind of had to and he went to a much more defensive shape and um, I'm not sure if people remember in January 09 Arsenal had four consecutive 0 nil draws and that was immediately after Fabregas was injured because he changed the shape of the whole team and he said okay I don't have Fabregas anymore." We can't concede one or two goals a game anymore. We have to be much more solid. And he put De Nielsen and Song in. And, and so things changed there. And again, this, this wasn't really in the plan. This was kind of on the fly um, type stuff. Um, and actually, kind of controversially, once Fabregas came back from injury in April, Arsenal went on this brilliant run that got them to fourth. And when Fabregas came back in April, they started losing again. Um, and that's, that's not because of Fabregas himself. It's because they went back to the more open formation mm. and it wasn't until the next season that Wenger thought, right, I need De Nilson, I need song behind fabric. I need two of them. Like I haven't got Flamini anymore. I haven't got that one player who's capable of running around so much because De and song had different qualities, but between them, they weren't, they weren't capable of covering loads and loads of ground. And so, he kind of changed things and he went to more of a, a, a more modern four three three shape. But all of this was very like you can tell it wasn't really in his plan and things like things had been the Apple cart had been upset and he was kind of I think his head was spinning um, a little bit, quite frankly, with what was happening. And then he had the Galas Torre thing at centre half. Mm-hmm. I don't think that really worked. And actually Galas and Torre fell out during this season and Tore ends up leaving. And you know, because we had we had a tiny back four, like Sanya Cliche, Toure, Galas, not great in the air. Um and when you buy Mikhail Silvestra to be the backup to that lot, um, you don't really solve that. you don't really solve any problem, but you don't solve that problem either. So we had this tiny back four and we had Denilson and Song protecting them. And, you know, we, we kind of almost went back to the days where we were getting bullied again.
1: Yeah, and I I, I mean, from front to back, just the, the way the team went from looking coherent, if not perfect, to incoherent. I mean, you're talking about 86 starts off, you know, just at a glance, that you lost in the summer between Flamini, Rositsky. Kleb, um, uh, uh, who else was it? Flamini, Rositsky, Kleb, Eduardo, right? I mean, so you look at those starts and you look at who replaced them, and it, honestly, it really is the project youth period that starts sort of the next season because that's when you wind up seeing players like Theo come more into prominence. Danielson as we mentioned, Aaron Ramsey gets you know nine league appearances. Alex Song makes 32, 31 league appearances. And and this is where it does start to become Project Youth a little bit more. And just kind of an incoherent team. The one thing that the 07-08 team had going for it is, you had a lot of players that made the lion's share of league appearances. The very next season, it's 22 for Cesc, it's 16 for Diaby, it's 28 for Nasri, it's 24 for Van Persie, it's 16 for Theo, it's, it's 23 for Song, and you go through the whole squad, and it's like that, ironically, and to your point, uh Tim Danielson at 36 starts is really the ever present in the squad that season along with Sanya at 34. So, you know, that is really the change and I'm I'm curious, you know, Paul another player, you know, we talk about Adebayor was he ever really as good as we thought? Eduardo lives in the memory. He's sort of a legendary player at Arsenal because of what happened to him that night in Birmingham. But you know, he he made 17 league appearances, 13 starts. Obviously, you know, he wouldn't play again until the very late part of the next season, and, and he, he never really had an Arsenal career out of, after that. How big a difference would it have made, both in the subsequent season and long-term, if Eduardo had stayed fit? And what do you think his ceiling was? I mean, have we, have we kind of given him the Diaby treatment, made him bigger than he was because of the injury status, or do you really think that we, we lost the potential for a, a Superstar?
4: Um, I don't know about Superstar because, you know, time's a factor in that, and we didn't see uh, a long enough period of him with us. Well, I mean, and, we've all got
1: Martinelli already better than Pele, so, you know, lean into whatever you want, man. <laughs>
4: yeah. So, you know, uh, Eduardo arrives, and at the start of this season, he's not playing every game, so his uh, 17 appearances there is a is a. a, a a brief glimpse in time, but it's also over a short period in time. And while he was there, he was very influential. I mean, I I think the reaction to him, um, there's a danger always in just measuring anything by, by one dimensional stats, by goals or assists or whatever. But I think you saw the difference when he was on the pitch um, in terms of how the team played of uh, the creativity, the movement, the, the uh, befuddling of the opposition that we would find a way. So I think he, you know, beyond his numbers um, uh, belies the fact that I think he uh, gave us a, a degree of unpredictability and impact in the final third uh, that we started to lose later on in the season. Obviously Fabregas being the major, the piece, major piece of it, um, uh, losing him, uh, had always this big impact. And as Tim said, when he came back, it didn't necessarily mean we started winning, but uh, learning to win without him or learning to have an impact without him and then getting him back, then readapting to him. Uh, he was always the talismanic fi- figure. So whenever you lost him or whatever was going on with w- what fabric gas was going on with Arsenal, um, I think Eduardo was a big deal for us. Um, but I think it also speaks a little bit again to the fragility of this team. I mean, um, in this game, uh, we, we talked about Cola Touré. Um, he was captain for this team, which is kind of an interesting one. I didn't quite remember it that way. But yeah, <clears throat> apparently captain at this point uh, tells you a little bit of, uh, about the senior figures going out and coming in. Uh, we had Gilberto Silva, in the back four as Tim talked about our our narrowed options cuz i think uh send Ross wasn't available. <laughs> so um like i say it's kind of interesting the i think there was a lot of inherent fragility in this 0708 team and yeah we were on a roll um but maybe we rem- we think of losing one player or or losing Eduardo and a bit of Fabregas as being the thing that turned the season around. And it may well have been, because you need a little look in these things. But we were definitely on thin ice. Um, and it was it, it was certainly heyday for the walking it into the goal, or at least that's what everybody said. It was also a heyday for Mark Clattenburg losing all his hair. That was quite funny. Um, miraculously sprung back from there. Um, but we were definitely trying to play the 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 perfect game of football and it was wonderful to watch but you know the, these I think we were riding our luck through in the season in terms of you can't just outgun everybody all season long and you, you, even with the Adibiora season you can see uh, again in this game you see the best and the worst of Adibiora he scores a, a one cracker at the end but but by then we had the game won. Um, and the number of frustrating moments you have with him, the, the two or three other goals that he should have scored or you can't miss, blah, blah, blah. But certainly it was, it was classic Adebayor. And in some ways he had two good seasons. This one, and I think it was, was a 10-11 or something at Spurs. He had another strong season with goals and assists. But mostly in this game, it reminded me how much, how frustrating he could be to the team. Mm. Um, so, uh, and that, uh, that was an issue for us in 08 09.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, let me ask you this, Scott, in terms of the, the, the players that kind of left or were unable to play, whether it was Eduardo through injury, Rusicki through injury or, um, Kleb leaving to Barcelona quite incredibly, or Flamini leaving on a free to Milan. Is there a player that had they been available for the, the totality of the next season, the next several subsequent seasons, could have really changed the trajectory and kept it from being a reset? Is there one of the players that left in that you know next window of, of departures, whether it was right away or maybe even you could add into that like a, an Adebayor if you want, but between you know Eduardo, Adebayor, Hleb, Flamini, is there one of them that you think had that player at that point stayed fit or stayed at the club that the trajectory might have remained upward?
2: I think you're just looking at going into the next season I think Flamini was probably the most because of his partnership that he was able to do Um, and then also looking at what was actually behind um, him, you know, for the next season. Um, So I think that one was probably the most important. Um, I think Rzinski as well, um, just because of his ability to um, kind of be that connecting of the, you know, to attack and defense. I'm sorry. Yeah. So then the midfield to be able to do all of that. I think those were probably the the two biggest losses going into the next year. Um, I think, you know, you, you, if those players are available going into that next season, you know, a little bit less dependence on youth, you um, know you can kind of blood them in a little bit more, um, you know, I guess sensibly um, instead of just throwing them straight into the deep end. Um, I think that probably sets Arsenal up for a little bit better going over the next two to three seasons. If even if there was just one more year of Flamini, that would have been um, a huge thing. Um, You know, I understand, you know, from his perspective, you know, he ended up getting the the best deal for himself, you know, doing this um, free transfers all the way through his career. Um, But, you know, it it is just something that's just disappointing um, from an Arsenal perspective.
1: Yeah. Is there, you know, when you look at maybe some of the opportunity that developed because of these departures, I mean, I've been looking at this just in terms of the negative. uh, Go figure. Um, You know uh, why things got bad, why it was a reset, you know, losing the players. but. Do you see an opportunity, something that as a result of one of these departures or one of these changes may have made way for something to happen at the club that that was a positive or a positive arrival or development?
2: Well, I think a lot of this stuff really informed um, some of the things that Arsene Wenger did later. You know, he is, is a project youth. He really kind of thought, well, I'm going to, you know, really go all in on that. And, you know, maybe if we, we bring people through the club this way, maybe they'll have more of a, um, you know, a, an infinity for it and want to stay longer. Um, that didn't quite work out. So then we, he pivoted to, you know, the the British core, um, thinking that same thing. You know, if, you know, maybe these people have a, an affinity towards Arsenal, maybe they'll stay a little bit longer. So I think a lot of what happened in this period um, kind of colored how he went through building teams into the future. Um, you know, neither of those quite worked out perfectly, but I think a lot of that was, you know, just the the way that Arsenal were, you know, kind of perched in the league.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's tough because I, I just... Th- there were players that wound up coming to prominence at the club that obviously wouldn't have, and, you know, players like Nasri who arrived and was fun for a little while, and then he fucked off too. So it's it was hard to get really attached to anyone at this time. And And Tim... Emotionally for Arsene Wenger, what do you think the, the blowback from this was? I mean, this started a period of players missing a lot of time injured and leaving shortly after making their name there. And I think, you know, if I had to rate Arsene Wenger's performance as a coach, period by period by period, I would put the period between, you know, 07, 08, maybe even through 10, 11, 11, 12, as one of his best because of the amount of minutes and games missed to injury and the amount of players that the moment he had something in them, they left... Um, and I don't really think it was until maybe after you know the Ozil arrival period that we started to see him really start to get some things wrong. How well do you think Arsene Wenger handled the the tumultuous period that that he entered at this point now, with players coming and players going, Adebayor hitting prominence and leaving, Nasri arriving, hitting prominence and leaving, Fabregas going, Van Persie going to United, losing Jack Wilshere basically for his whole career, losing Rosicki and Vermaelen and Eduardo and Ramsey. I mean... It was an incredible feat, I think, that he kept us as competitive as he did, both in Europe and in the league. And, you know, how would you evaluate the way he reacted to those changes, really notably starting with what happened to this team?
3: Yeah, I I think it was up and down. So I think, yes, he did manage some of that uh, quite well. But at the same time... um, he has some responsibility in some of those things that happened, you know, some of those players left for a reason. Um, and I think the thing is, this is the point where Wenger kind of, whether it was his fault or or, so, I think it's a mixture of the two, right? I think there was a little bit of bad planning and there was a little bit of bad luck. Um, and seeing you know, either injuries or, or players quitting, um, and, you know, it became a bit of a vicious circle. But he, I think he became a bit of a back of the cigarette packet manager during this time in terms of uh, some of the seasons just look so badly planned to me, which is why we had this like real peak trough thing going on from from this season onwards through to, you know, probably about 2030. Well, but it possibly never, ever went away this kind of like peak trough crisis management. That I think we fell into and, and actually like some of the best things that he did in this time or the best football that we played was usually kind of by accident um, or usually stuff that was stumbled upon. When you think about like, I don't know, Cochrane and Kazola, for example, like accident stumbled upon um, and, and, I I think a lot of this started to happen or, you know, he would try to play one way and things would go really badly wrong. So he'd stop and he'd do something else, you know, like the time he dropped uh, Vermaulen and Chesney at the end of 12, 13, Mm. because he was desperate and he put Fabianski in and he put um, Koscielny in and, and it worked because Arsenal went into this kind of, well, let's, but let's be tight. Let's contain. And we played Ramsey as like a defensive midfielder and it worked and he went, OK, we've had 10 really good games there. Let's try and get expansive again. And he'd try and it wouldn't work. And I think we fell into a cycle here where, you know, particularly looking back, I look back on this time now and I kind of think, yeah, there were things that happened that were beyond his control, like injuries and things like that. But the impact of injuries is less if your planning is better and your squad is better. And I wonder if Arsene Wenger looks back on some of this era and just goes, "Fuck, I really wish I'd just bought a centre back that January," you know. And actually, he did start to do that towards the end. You know, he he did start to do the kind of, you know. I'm, I'm buying Gabrielle in January. We need another centre-back. This is ridiculous. I'm yeah, doing Yeah, I it. mean, I'd point to and, the Leicester season not getting
1: himself a midfielder when Cazorla went down yeah. and, and playing Coughlin and Flamini the rest of the way costing us a title as, as maybe a counterpoint to that.
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, just, I just wonder if he looks back on some of these seasons or when he had to start playing Arshavin up front because all the strikers were yep. injured. Oh, and, uh... Yeah and and that happened in december and we've got that and so it was like okay we can do this for a couple of weeks but then january then it's january and you know we can get like a strike and like he just didn't do it and i just wonder if um if he looks back and thinks and and it was it all seemed to be in the kind of name of planning but when i look back i think When I look back at this era, honestly, I I wonder how much of it was really planned because like the stuff like Denilson and Song coming into the team during the 08-09 season, I get that because Denilson and Song were already at the club. He'd already bought them. He already saw them as part of the future, Whether he uh, probably not this soon. And they were probably first-team fixtures slightly earlier than, than he anticipated. But he wanted them there, and he saw them as part of the future. But after this, I think it just starts to unravel a little bit. And yes, he does some crisis management quite well, but that crisis was at least partially of his own making.
1: And I think, but but I think the the one thing I'll say in his defense that's that's difficult, right? Is if you're a, a manager and you're looking at your groups and you're writing down names of players and you're like, Flamini, Rosicki, Hleb, Fabregas, Song, Denielsen, uh you know, you you don't look at that group and think that's a problem area and I need to be really smart here. And you think, oh, I'll talk Flamini into re-signing and Rosicky's injury is a thigh. He'll be fine. And you know, Kleb is, is coming off a great season for us. And then Kleb somehow goes to Barcelona and Flamini, you can't talk into a contract and Rositsky misses 18 months and Sass plays half the season. And you know, I, I'm not saying that you don't have to do a better job reacting to that in real time, but you know, I mean, I I can I have some sympathy for the idea that you look at the names on the paper and you think you've got a good group, and by the time you blink and it's late July, you either don't have that group or injuries start stretching out longer than you expect, and and it's difficult. And I, I think he, he went through a lot of periods like that. And I can also understand being gun-shy about buying in a way because this was, if you remember, when Arsene went into his, if I buy a player, I kill this young player argument. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I can understand why he felt that way because he's like, what? I'm gonna buy Nasri and lose him in two seasons. I'm gonna buy Adebayor, and when he comes to prominence, I'm gonna lose him to City. Or I'm gonna buy Haleb and he's gonna have an amazing season for me and almost help me win a title. And then he's gonna to go to Barcelona the next season. Like, I can understand why you'd be gun shy about yeah. buying players to play in lieu of the young players when all you feel you're doing is leasing them for a year to fuck off again.
3: You know what I mean? But but then that's um, and and this is possibly where he went wrong. Um, that kind of always happened. Um, yeah, at the beginning point. of his reign, like Anelka fucked off and he bought Henri. Overmars fucked off and he bought Pires. and, and maybe, maybe looking back, maybe he just went through this massive fucking hot streak and he got lucky six or seven times and it carried us through. And then, you know, there was a reversion to the mean and he got really, really unlucky. I'd like, I, I don't know. I don't think I think about it like that, but it's a possibility like that kind of always happened. And but what we what we did really well in that period was we got paid when those players wanted that's to bingo. leave. Such a and good actually, point. Tim. Yeah, that's yeah. how you build
1: a team, right? I mean that's and, what you want to do. You want to lease players yeah. and sell them for more than you bought them for and buy a better replacement. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And and instead what happened was he kind of stuck with um, you know, Song and Danielson and I I'll say this, Wilshere as well, when it when it was kind of I, I understand more with Wilshere, but I th- I think it was quite clear that Um, you know, the, the injuries had, had fucked him and, and not just the injuries. I, I do think that there was, um, a part of Jack's brain that was never going to let him be a top class footballer and, and we held on and we held on and we held on when, you know, really, I think it would have been much better to like refresh and renew that. That's what he did brilliantly in the first part of his reign that he kind of stops doing at this point and it, it kind of lets that staleness creep in.
1: I find it so difficult to evaluate this period because there were things about it that I think are really great and things about it that I think uh, were really mismanaged. I mean the Fabregas interview with Arsblog is great cuz you kind of get it from the other perspective. Um you know and certainly the the Xavi Alonso transfer that never happened I think could have made a big difference. Paul, let me just ask you a hypothetical. If the 0708 team stays together for a period of several seasons, you know, let's say two, three more seasons of really staying together with that group. Was the ceiling what it looked like, or was it an illusion? What would that team have accomplished if it stayed together? And, and didn't Uh, suffer the horrific injury, you know, so you get Rosicki playing as much as you want, and Eduardo playing as much as you want. I I realize football doesn't work that way. Injuries do happen, but not the sort of catastrophic season robbing ones.
4: Um, well, I think this team would still have needed something to, to push on and to uh, achieve the level we saw in the first half of this season. Um, I mean, it was thin at the back. I think I said, uh, Ross, but it was Sylvester that was missing from the back line for this game. Um, you know, there was, there was just that vulnerability, the fragility where on our day, we were going to be great. We would outscore you, uh, three, two or whatever. um, But I just I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I'd <laughs> like to think that Wenger was looking to to add some additional steel to this team, but that's a conversation we had kind of every season. I did feel maybe after 0708, that he he did kind of a pivot to the more romantic values notion of football and a little less away from the Alex Ferguson. What what do we need to do this summer, this transfer w- window, because we're going to win the league? Um, and I think Arson changed a little bit. He, I, I think his resources, I, I think voices on him were, was a scenario in which he was not going to have the same resources as his biggest opponent or opponents. And I think there was a part of his poetic soul that said, okay, uh, let's do this differently and better. Uh, not with more money, but with more leaning more into the values that he believed in. Maybe he'd always had a discomfort uh, at st- spending at the top levels and wanted to do it by um, kind of the 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 purer football philosophy of develop. You know, he he enjoyed developing young players too much for not for that not to be his preference. <clears throat> Mm. and so this was kind of a breaking point for him in terms of a season um which driven by the whole emirates move um and this kind of coming apart towards the end of the season and uh, and the seams coming apart and he was asked to take on the challenge um and and i think in many ways he embraced it um i what what would he have needed to do with this team for it to kind of keep and attain these levels? He was he was still going to have to add some. He's going to have to add some in defence. Uh, the midfield was pretty exciting. Had he kept Flamini, um, had that would have bought him time, as you kind of alluded to, for Song uh, to come through. Um, uh, and Song needed the competition. And danielson talked about his own challenges in the Premier League. Maybe that having the senior players ahead of both of those guys would have given them a guide. I mean, you, you see in this Spurs game just how effective and how uh, focused Flam- Flamini could be when at full physical powers. Um, Kleb was quite the force in joining the dots. Um, Rizitski came on in this game as as uh, a substitute late in the game to impact it. We had Diaby, who was fit and strong and coming through, um, playing a role in this game. And so if you get to hold on to all of those players, um, your midfield's pretty strong. I think it's just the defense that needed a little shoring up. And as Tim had talked about recently, I mean, this was Pete Clichy. He was he almost a man of the match performance against Spurs. And... Um, he, he was in form. Sanya was in form. You add a little depth to the the centre backs, and then you only have the the uh, issue with Almunia, who just distremi- went full Almunia in this game and a few oh, others. I can't stand him. <laughs> so you were always going to have that little thing at the back. Uh, great at times, uh, absolute uh, calamity at other times. But yeah, I think I think this oh seven oh eight team with just a little more steel at the back. Keeping all those players and them staying fit, man, that would be a force. I, th- I think 08, 09, uh, 09, 10, um, it wouldn't have needed too much more. Center backs are probably the thing we were missing.
1: Yeah, and you know why I think I have a little sympathy for Arson too is like he'd have this, this – Ray of light like the O seven O eight season, and the fans would be like, "We're back! We've got something special!" And then something would conspire, and part of it would be arson, making mistakes, but it'd be injuries, it'd be people requesting to move, and then you'd have a bad season. O eight O nine when Arshavin's got to come in and rescue top four. O nine ten I believe wasn't very good, and then. It would click again, you know. Van Persie would have a, a fit season, and Nazri would hit his peak, and he'd 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 get the mix right, and things would go back to being good. and We'd have a good season, and then Van Persie would fuck off to to United, and, Seska and Nasri would leave in the same same summer, and we're back to having a transitional season that's no good. And then you know an Ozo arrives, and everything looks like it's going to be good again, and Alex is good, and you know, and then it would fall apart again. I think. The the rhythm of what we went through, of having these false dawns where it looked like Arson had put something together that could really become special, was undone not always by his own making. You know, I mean, the the Van Persie departure, Nasri and Fabregas departures, the departures after the 07-08 season, it was a lot. And then you combine it with injuries, whether it was Eduardo and Rosicki, whether it was Vermilion and Ramsey, whether it was Wilshire, you know, whatever, whatever the injuries were... It, it, it all made it very difficult for any continuity to be strung together. And I, I do have some sympathy for that. But when I look back at the 07-08 season, I will remember it aesthetically as one of my my most pleasing seasons. And I just remember it as a season that, for whatever reason, sticks with me. And, uh, you know, not all of them during that period did. So Scott had to go. He was needed. We're going to leave it there. Uh, I've got a music interlude for you. I've got I got music. We're going to do music. But before we do that, let me say goodbye to Paul. You can find him on Twitter Pause in my Pants. Thanks, Paws. Woo-hoo. Uh Tim's on Twitter at so, Thanks, Tim. Tim, did did you go away when my mic went away?
3: My pleasure as always. Ah, there
1: we go. Thanks, Tim. Um, okay, this is quite the end of the pod. Technically, te- technically masterful. Bl- blame COVID. Uh, but okay, so next week we're going to talk to you about uh, some charitable giving that we can all do together. But before that, here's what we're going to do. Uh, so I got approached on Discord by a patron. He goes by the name Old Dirty Eric on uh, on Discord, and I presume that's because he's old, he's dirty, and his name is Eric. Uh, he has produced a song, okay, and uh, together with the singer In Limbo uh, from Sweden, the song is called Slowly. We are getting the chance to debut it to the world. It's a sad pop song with airy ambient vibe mixed with trap drums. The lyric video and song will be available on all major platforms from 4.15 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. today, but we get to play it for you first, so I hope you like it. It's uh, it's a really good song. It's from an Arsenal supporter. It is from an Arsenal Vision podcast supporter, and uh, for all those reasons, I am glad to debut it here. So, we love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 20 COVID-19, and here is Slowly from Old Dirty Eric and In Limbo. Enjoy.
5: I've been scared since I walked alone. I would never care nothing personal. I'm losing. i know